Now, what are the type of prophets and prophecies? First off, there are different types of prophets. There are the literary prophets. They're the ones that wrote John and Ezekiel and so forth. They're the ones that actually wrote books. Then there are the non-literary prophets. Where is the where in your Bible can you find the uh, book of Hezekiah? Well, Hezekiah was a prophet, but where do you find the book of John the Baptist? Where do you find the book of Jesus? You see, they were prophets, but they didn't write. Okay, well, Jesus did on the sands, you know, and on the stone, but he didn't write a book per se. There are male prophets and female prophetesses. The Bible mentions, um, oh, who are some of them? Deborah and uh, Anna, and there are some others that are mentioned. There are the canonical prophets and the non-canonical. Canonical means they got into the Bible. There are some prophets who didn't get into the Bible. The Bible talks about the writings of the uh, prophet Gad. We have not found Gad's prophecies. At least they didn't when they put the Bible together. And so the book of Gad never got into the Bible, you see. So there are some of these that didn't quite make it into the scriptures, but they are what we call non-canonical. Now, what are types of prophecies? Literal or classical prophecy? When we did the Ruth seminar, I referred to these. Literal prophecy is if John goes out and I say, John, you're going to get hit with a brick on your head. He goes out and boing, he gets hit with a brick. It literally came true, right? All right. Now, there are several types of classical prophecy. There's conditional and unconditional. When Jonah went around walking up and down the streets of Nineveh saying, you're all going to be toast in 40 days. Well, 40 days came and went, and they weren't burned up. Why? Because they repented, you see. That prophecy was conditional. If they didn't repent, they'd be toast. And later on, they backslid and went back to their old ways, and they were destroyed. Uh, Then there's apocalyptic prophecy. This is where you use symbols. Daniel, Revelation, Ezekiel, Zechariah. And other places are good examples of this. You don't often see a lion with wings and a leopard with four heads. You can see that those are symbolic. And then there are narrative or story prophecy, and Ruth is the most common on that one. Let's look um, about different approaches to understanding prophecy. This is extremely important in understanding the book of Daniel because There are so many weird interpretations out there that people have about, you know, the the rapture coming and who's going to be taken, who's going to be left, and who the Antichrist is and all this. It's because they are mixing up these interpretations. Basically, there are technically, there are four schools of interpretation we're going to talk about. The first one is historicism. Seventh-day Adventists are historicists. What does that mean? It means you compare history and prophecy. You study them together. And as you study them together, you see the picture developing. 
Now, originally, the Catholic Church followed the historicist approach up until the time of Martin Luther and around that time. We find that St. Jerome, who translated the Latin Vulgate Bible, he used the historicist approach. So did St. Augustine and many of the Catholic uh, commentators. What about Protestants? Martin Luther used it. John Calvin used it. John Wesley used it. And your great reformers used the historicist approach. Interestingly enough, even though he was not, uh, he was not a religious leader, Isaac Newton used it. So Isaac Newton wrote more about religion than he did about science. And a lot of people are not aware of that. I have his commentary on the book of Daniel. It's very good. The second school is preterism. Now, preterism came up at the end of the 1500s, the beginning of the 1600s. Why? Because Martin Luther and the Reformers, who were following the historicist approach, when they start talking about the Antichrist, who was to appear, they were pointing their fingers to Rome. And at the Council of Trent, and before and after that too, they said, hey, look, we've got to get the heat off of the church. Therefore, they sent two uh, individuals to restudy these and come up with alternate interpretations. The first one was Louis de Alcazar. In 1614, he, he was sent off to come up with an alternate conclusion. And after being gone for a little bit, few years, he came back and he says, ah, all of these prophecies were fulfilled in the past. And the Antichrist was a fellow, a Syrian king by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Anybody ever hear of him before? Okay. Well, Antiochus Epiphanes, and he's long dead. So these, there are no more prophecies about the Antichrist after this. So really, Daniel and Revelation they really don't have any effect on us today. Well, that caught on, and most of your higher education likes to fall back on that. That's why I said beware of the interpreter's Bible, uh, interpreter's uh, commentary. There were some others, and I mentioned here, Henry Hammond and Hugo Grotius and others. In your pamphlet that I gave you, that booklet, I gave you a whole list of historicists to show you. I went through old commentaries and pulled out all these different individuals who subscribed to the historicist approach. Then how many were using the preterist approach? But that didn't catch on as well. But before Alcazar came out with his, there was another fellow. Both of these men were Spanish Jesuit priests, Alcazar and Francisco Ribera. Francisco de Ribera, in 1590, he came out with an interpretation. He says, well, these prophecies cannot apply to the papacy and to the church because they take place at the end of time. Way down here, when an Antichrist will come up in the last days. And this Antichrist will be the one that fulfills these prophecies. 
Well, Robert Bellarmine and various others caught on to this. So this is called futurism, but it was basically confined pretty much to the Catholic Church until the 1800s. In the early 1800s, there was a Protestant by the name of Samuel Maitland. Samuel Maitland began to bring this into Protestantism. And about the 1830s, there was an an Irishman by the name of John Nelson Darby. He actually went to uh, a meeting that was supposed to be where a woman who was supposed to be a prophet was speaking. Many people believe and teach that it was actually a seance that he went to. And there she expounded to him a vision that she had that before the world would fall into the tribulations of the last days, that God would secretly rapture out his people so that they don't have to go through the time of trouble. Sound familiar? Now, when we get into the book of Daniel, you can see how Daniel disproves this. So when people talk about the secret rapture, the correct name for it is Darbyism. That's the real name for it. And you can't trace that back beyond the early 1800s. Okay? Now, this became popular when a fellow by the name of Dr. Charles Schofield published his Bible. And in the 1870s, when his Bible came out, he used the regular King James Bible, but in the notes at the bottom, he put a lot of this futurism, including the secret rapture, into it. And the Schofield Bible, and I have a copy of it at home, became very popular in the early 1900s. I mean, Billy Sunday and the early evangelists going through the South and elsewhere, even the Midwest, they used to preach from the Schofield Bible. And because of this, your Baptists, your Pentecostals, and some of the others who were using that really picked up on this. Now, today, what's happened? You'll find that Jack Van Impey, um, who are some others? Uh, well, uh, come on, the guy at Liberty University, who am I thinking of? Um, you know who I mean? Died? Liberty University, anybody? Anyway, <laughs> him. Uh, his mind, my mind is slipping on that. But we find that on, most of your TV preachers today are fu- preaching futurism. The late great planet Earth made it popular, if you remember that, back in the 60s and 70s. We find, too, that uh, the Left Behind series, which is listed not under as nonfiction, it's listed under fiction, but the Left Behind series has made this very popular today. So what's happened? We find that most of Protestantism has jumped track They've left behind the historicist approach, and now most of them are chasing after futurism. And that's why you hear so many strange things predicted. Now, there's a fourth school of interpretation. This is called the spiritual or idealistic idealism 
theory. This is really a syncretism. It's a blending of preterism and futurism and a few other things mixed in. So I'm not going to spend too much time on that because that's kind of a, a conglomerate. Okay? And that hasn't caught on as widely as some others. All right. We're going to be moving now into discussion of the book of Daniel. And as we turn our thoughts to the book of Daniel, Jacques Ducan, in his Secrets of Daniel, he records the story of a small Iraqi village. And it was in turmoil. The people on one side of the river would yell curses at those on the other side. And they were wailing and making all kinds of noise because on the other side was the tomb of the prophet Daniel. And the people on that side were prospering. They were getting wealthy. But the people on the other side were poor. And so the poor people were complaining because they wanted the tomb of Daniel to be moved over to their side of the river. And this went on for quite a while. Finally, they decided that that's what they would do. They would have the prophet Daniel's tomb over here this year, and then the next year they would dig him up, dig up the tomb, and have it on the other side of the river. And this went on for quite a while, moving it back and forth, until finally, after this going on for a while, it mentions that a king came along who thought, hey, you know, this isn't very good on the prophet Daniel to be moving his bones back and forth all the time. So he came up with an ingenious idea. He said, what we're going to do is we're going to chain his tomb in the middle of a bridge that connects both sides. That way, Daniel would be a prophet for not only both sides of Iraq, but for the world. And so this is what they did. And Daniel, it shows, was for everybody. The book of Daniel is for everybody today. The Jews recognize the book of Daniel. We find that even the Muslims recognize the book of Daniel. So do the Christians. Daniel is a well-known prophet and well-documented prophet, both in secular history and in religious history. So there is evidence and proof that Daniel actually lived and that of his writings. What about the book of Daniel? First, let's talk about Daniel. The name Daniel itself, and the Muslims like to call him by this name, Daniel, it means God is my judge. Now the prophets' lifespan, the whole 70 years that they were in the Babylonian captivity. He saw the destruction of Jerusalem, and he also saw the destruction of Babylon. He was deported about the age 16. Some say as late as 18. In there somewhere. But from the use of the word as it's used in the original language, there's reason to believe he was probably about 16 at the time. He lived to be over 100 years old. Now, nine out of 12 chapters revolve around dreams in the book of Daniel. 
And there are seven prayers recorded in the book of Daniel. And these prayers are very significant. Now, Daniel wasn't a priest. He was rather an administrator, a government official. He was of the royal household. He was related to the last king of Israel, uh, Zechariah. He was a descendant of his. But he served two empires. And he served as prime minister of two empires. He was a prophet both to the Jews and to the Gentiles. And Daniel claims himself to have written the book of Daniel. It tells us in Daniel 12, 4, that Daniel wrote these things. He gives his own name there. Now, it's interesting that the book of Daniel uses more numbers and mathematics than any other book in the Bible. You've got all these prophecies that have numbers attached to them. And as we go through them, you'll see that those are very significant. Daniel himself, he and his three friends were apparently of Judean noble birth. He was very good looking from what we're told. No blemish was found in him. He was wise, he was understanding, he was a quick learner. He spent three years in the University of Babylon, it tells us in chapter 1-5. His name was changed to Belteshazzar, meaning Bel protects his life. Bel protects his life. By the way, um, Bel and Baal would eventually um, have the same name. The Bel actually was the god Marduk that's mentioned also in the scriptures. So some of these gods had multiple names. Ezekiel in the 6th century was a contemporary of his. When Daniel was taken into captivity, Daniel was taken to the palace of the royal court. He worked with the upper echelon of society. Whereas Ezekiel, he went with the common people into captivity. So Ezekiel is a, is a prophet to the common people who were taken into captivity, but they were living at the same time. There is nothing negative recorded of Daniel in the scriptures. Isn't that interesting? Nothing negative. Job, there's nothing negative recorded of him. And um, Enoch, I think it was. Enoch, Job, and Daniel, if I remember correctly, that there was nothing negative recorded about them. Our Bible refers to them as perfect men. Jesus refers to Daniel as a prophet in Matthew 24, 15. So if Jesus recognized him as a prophet, that should be sufficient for us. Okay? As we move on, we need to look at a little bit of the background of what's happening, just to, uh, for the setting. Now, we're in the year 605 when this book opens. 605 B.C. Now, you notice it says B.C.E. That means before the Christian era. Okay? Uh, we oftentimes just refer to it as, as uh, B.C. But a lot of people get the, make a mistake there. Because what does A.D. mean? 
A lot of people say it means after death. Uh-uh. It comes from Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. That's what A.D. means. Well, the Jews don't accept Jesus as their Lord. The Muslims don't accept Jesus as their Lord. So they don't like using B.C. and A.D. before Christ and in the year of our Lord. Rather, they use B.C.E., which means before the Christian era. And then for A.D., it would be after the Christian era or in the Christian era. Okay? So we find here this is why it's abbreviated this way. Now, the Chaldeans, they are basically the Babylonians, they besieged Jerusalem. The book of Daniel opens with a battle between two cities. As the book opens, we find the city of Jerusalem, with, which represents everything that's good. These are God's promised people. He is the God of the heaven. He's the great creator. He's the one that has the perfect law and epitomizes a people that God exalts. But Babylon is the exact opposite. Babylon is a confusion of paganism. It's everything that's false. It's immoral. The laws are corrupted. The people are corrupted. And it's violent. It's in direct opposition. But notice when it opens... Here we find the God of heaven and his beautiful city and people are defeated. And the Babylonians win. And you can imagine the psychological effect that would have on the Jews, the effect it would have on the nations around. But when the chapter ends, when the book ends, what happens? By the time you get to the end of the book of Daniel, we find that Jerusalem is rebuilt, the people are restored, and it's Babylon that goes down to destruction. So you see, it's really a battle of uh, two cities. And as we look at this, this isn't the first time that people were deported. When Jerusalem was taken captive, the capital of Judah the inhabitants were deported. Now, it was invaded three times, okay? Daniel was taken into captivity at the first invasion. And a century before this, in 722 B.C. or B.C.E., the Assyrians had invaded the northern kingdom of Israel and taken the ten tribes into captivity, The kingdom of Judah, therefore, represents the last surviving portion of David's kingdom. Remember after Solomon, Solomon and David's kingdom was split in half between Israel in the north and Judah in the south. These ten tribes in the north were taken into captivity by the Assyrians a hundred years before the Babylonians came in and took the Judeans. By the way, the word Jew... There were no Jews before the captivity. The word, they were simply Hebrews or Israelites. The word Jew simply means Judah. Why? Because the ten tribes that were taken into captivity 
were taken into the Assyrian provinces and they were assimilated into it and they disappeared. Oh, there were a few few stragglers of them that made their way back when, when things were restored. But as a group, they disappeared. They assimilated into the society. And so those who came out of Babylonian captivity, you look in your Bible and you'll find that it's not till they return to Jerusalem that they are referred to as Jews. Okay? So this is where it comes from. As we look at this, we find that the king of Assyria, Sargon II, and he is also interesting because those who who discredited the Bible and didn't believe in the Bible, for a long time, for centuries, they used to say, well, you can tell the Bible's a fairy tale because it it makes up kings. It talks about kings like Sargon II. There's no historical record of Sargon II because history can't produce Sargon II. The Bible's wrong. Guess what? An archaeologist digging around literally fell into the palace of Sargon II. And when they shined a light on the wall, they showed Sargon II, and coming to him were Hebrews. And from that time on, they shut their mouths on that particular issue. Because the Bible proved true, the historians proved wrong. And so there's a lot that has yet to come to light and will silence a lot of the critics. Notice it mentions here that Sargon II used the practice of deporting people. He followed the, uh, the policy established by uh, Tiglath-Pileser III in 745 to 727 B.C. And don't forget, when we talk about B.C., we count time backwards. A.D., we count forward. In B.C., we count time backwards. And so that's why it goes from 45 to 27. Now, Sargon forcefully transferred the Israelites to the eastern regions of Assyria. When he captured the 12 tribes, uh, 10 tribes, he takes and he moves them out. And what does he do? He takes the people who were in the eastern provinces and he moves them back to the northern part of Israel. And so these people later become the Samaritans. The Samaritans kind of blended the religion of Israel with some of their eastern religions. That's why the Jews, when they returned, or the people in the southern kingdom, didn't want anything to do with them because they were foreigners. There's a lot of moving around of these people. And uh, the Palestinians today are still at conflict with the Jews because a lot of the Palestinians were people who were brought into this territory to replace people who were moved out. And even the Jordanians uh, don't want the Palestinians. And Jordan is right next door to Israel, you see. So you can see where the conflicts of today have ancient roots. So we find here, not only did they bring in people of Babylonian origin, but also it says the Kuthians. Now, who they are, I don't know. 
but there's somebody that lived over there. And I'm not uh, knowledgeable about their history. But it was basically people who were imported. Now, the majority of the Hebrew people disappeared in this process. The 10 tribes out of the 12 just assimilated into the world. This almost happened to the Jews in Babylon because when the Babylonian captivity is over after 70 years, only a few of them went back to Jerusalem. The rest of them preferred to stay where they were. It's just like how many of you, your ancestors came from Europe? All right? Once they're over here, they don't want to go back to the old country. This is their home. They learn the language. And sometimes they forget the culture and they forget the relatives back there and they disconnect. And this is what, uh, what happened. Let's look at, uh, I mentioned a lot of this already. But anyway, Babylon rebelled against the Assyrians in 626 B.C. It overthrew the capital of Nineveh in 612. And we find that Babylon now becomes the master of the Middle East in 605. This is about the time of Daniel now. When it defeated the Egyptian armies at the Battle of uh, Carchemish, and it, they entered Palestine. Now here's where the Jews get involved. You see... Here is Babylon over here. Here's Egypt down here. The Egyptians claimed Palestine, which is basically uh, the land of Judah and Israel and, uh, you know, the lands along the coast up as far as Lebanon. They claimed that as their territory. But the Assyrians had also claimed that territory. Now that the Babylonians had defeated the Assyrians... They come in and they claim that territory. So what's going to happen? They're about, the Egyptians and the Babylonians are about to go to war. Now it just so happens that King Josiah, he was on the wrong side. As a matter of fact, the Egyptian king, Nico, said, look, I've got to go fight against the Babylonians and the Assyrians, and uh, keep out of this war. Keep out of this thing. Or else when I come back, I'll squash you like a bug. And he said a little better than I did. But anyway, but Josiah didn't do that. What did Josiah do? He entered into the battle. And so when he came back, what did he do? He squashed them like a bug. And we find that that meant that the Egyptians were now in control of that. Well, we find that some of them wanted to break away from Egypt, so some of his sons, they broke away when they became king. But that upset the Babylonians. So the Babylonians came down, took him off the throne, and put another one on who was favorable to him. And this switching back and forth is what got the Jews into so much trouble. And so this is what happened. It says... The kings of Judah, or Judea, after Josiah's death in 1 Chronicles 3, 5, there were three of them, and they were all wicked kings. And it mentions that 
Jehoiakim, also known as Eliakim. He ruled for 11 years, and the dates are on there. He died, and actually he was killed, and his son Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, excuse me, he's also called Jeconiah or Kaniah. Those are all other names for him. And he was captured in 597 after three months and ten days as king. That's not long to serve as a king. He was imprisoned by Nebuchadnezzar. Ezekiel also was taken prisoner at this time. And we find that his uncle, Mathaniah, which is also known as Zedekiah, to whom Daniel is related, he reigns, and we find that Nebuchadnezzar was angry because he was playing politics with the Egyptians, and he was vacillating between the two. And in 586 B.C., we find that he invades the city, and the temple is destroyed, and the king is killed. So this is some of the background for Daniel. Daniel is taken under Jehoiakim to Babylon. And with him were some of the temple vessels. You know, the stuff that they used in the temple. The, uh, not the furniture so much, but the utensils. This was during the first deportation in 605, just before the death of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, when, Nebu- when Daniel opens, Nebuchadnezzar's father is on the throne of Babylon. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. And while Nebuchadnezzar is capturing the land of Israel, the land of Judah, and so forth, his father dies. And because there was so much intrigue going on at that time, he had to get home and claim the throne immediately. If he didn't, some of his relatives would try to claim the throne or some other usurper. So if you're familiar, and in the pamphlet I gave you, it shows the Fertile Crescent there. If you wanted to go to Jerusalem from Babylon, you had to go up into Syria, down the Fertile Crescent to get there because it's nothing but desert in between. And so what happens when he takes Daniel and some of the other princes captive, he sends them back to Babylon. They have to walk it. It's about a thousand miles if you go that way. Now, what's a thousand miles? When I lived in Wilson, Michigan, sometimes when I would have to go down to the university at at Andrews and then across to the conference office and home, I would go down one side of the lake, down through Chicago, down to the university, Then I would go back to Lansing and back up over the bridge. That's 75 miles short of 1,000. So that would be from, uh, here's Israel down here, Jerusalem. We'd have to go up and all the way over walking that 1,000 miles. But what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He gets on horseback and he takes a beeline through the desert. He takes the shortcut right across the desert, which is only about 600 miles. And he gets back. He establishes himself on the throne. That's why he's there to receive Daniel when he comes. Because Daniel had to come the slow way, even though they both left the land of 
Palestine about the same time. And so the rest of that you can just read because I've discussed pretty much of it. Now, Daniel was in Babylon when the temple fell. Interestingly enough, when the temple was destroyed, Daniel was already living in Babylon. You can imagine the heartache he felt when the holy temple of God was destroyed by the Babylonians. He also lived to see Babylon destroyed and his people free. Babylon was overcome by the Medes and the Persians in 539 B.C. And he served King Darius, the Mede, and King Cyrus, the Persian. So you've got, actually, you've got at least four kings that he served. The Babylonian kings, a Median king, and then a Persian king. Daniel's was friends with Nebuchadnezzar and with Darius. He was also a friend with Cyrus, but not the same way. And we find that the book of Daniel was likely written during the time of King Cyrus, about 530 B.C. Okay, so that's pretty much the background. If you look at the way it's organized, you can see the personal history of Daniel is covered in chapter 1. The prophetic plans for the Gentiles, chapters 2 through 7. And then we see the prophetic plans for the end time people, 8 through 12. And you can see the rest of it on there. Now, the interesting thing is the book of Daniel, the approach we're going to use is different. We are not going to go the traditional way. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. That's the traditional way we do it. We are going to go the chronological way, the way it was written. Why it was put in that order, I really don't know. I think it's probably because each chapter was written separately on a separate scroll. And it may have been that's the way they just put it together. But if you look at it closely, look at your your Daniel closely, you'll find that it's arranged a little differently. It says for chapter 1 that it takes place in the third year of Jehoiakim. This is before they go into captivity. That chapter starts. Then it's the second year of Nebuchadnezzar. So chapter 2 had to follow chapter 1. When we talk about Daniel's four friends serving the king, that's in chapter 3. And then finally, Nebuchadnezzar is converted just before he dies in chapter 4. But notice what happens after that. We skip because the next chapter should actually be chapter 7. Why? Because who was the king it mentions follows Nebuchadnezzar? Actually, there, was, there were some minor kings in between. Belshazzar is really the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Notice here, in chapter 7, it says in the first year of Belshazzar. In chapter 8, it says it's the third year of Belshazzar. And then in chapter 5, Belshazzar dies. Well, why should we put him up there after 4? How can he die before he reigns? You see? And then, when we look at chapter 9, it says in the first year of Darius... Chapter 11 also talks about the first year of Darius. Then chapter 6, we find Daniel promoted 
and Darius dies. Here again, how could he die before he had a chance to do some of these things? So they seem to be out of sequence. And then finally, when we get to chapter 10, it says the third year of Cyrus. So chapter 10 would have to come after chapter 11, not before it. And then finally, you know, it's interesting that chapter 10 talks about Michael. Chapter 12 picks up talking about Michael. So this is a chronological arrangement. And this is the order I'd like to follow, okay? So anybody who's listening on a recording and they wonder why I'm skipping around, this is the reason for it. Let's look at chapter 1. Most of it you're already familiar with, but we'll go through it. Chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. He circled it. It's also interesting that there in the Hebrew calendar, there's a holiday called the Ninth of Av. Tisha B'Av, it's called. It's interesting that Jerusalem fell and the temple was burned by the Babylonians on the ninth of the month of Av. An interesting piece of history is later on, many, many uh, centuries later, we find that about 600 years later, in 70 AD, the Romans invade Jerusalem, and they burn the temple. And it was also on the same holiday, Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av. So the temple was burned once by the Babylonians, once by the Romans, on the same day of the same month. And there were many other things in history. The Jews got kicked out of Spain on Tisha B'Av. And there are a number of other things that have happened. They were kicked out of England on Tisha B'Av. And so there's a lot of, the, the Jews are superstitious about that day. We talk about Friday the 13th. They are, they are very sensitive about that date. Notice also it said besieged. It means he encircled it. Look at verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. So the Lord allowed, notice that word gave into his hand. It's important. He gave Jehoiakim into the hand of the king of Babylon with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried to the land of Shinar. Now, Shinar, Babylon, basically, the old name for that was Shinar. After the time of Noah, they went down and they, they populated the land of Shinar. So this is the larger area of which Babylon is more of a focal point. And he puts these things in the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. In verse 3, And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes. So what did he do? He took 
the royal family. Now, there was a concern on the part of the Babylonian king. He wanted to train these men in the University of Babylon. He wanted to brainwash them into the Babylonian culture, and then he would send them back to their different provinces to reign, to be governors and rulers. But the only problem is he's afraid that they will break away and establish themselves as kings and pass it on to their children, you see. They will set themselves up as kings. So what does he do when he brings these in? And by the way, there were more than Daniel and his three friends who were taken. That's important. What does he do? When he brings them in, he castrates them so that they cannot have offspring. That's why he's given into the hands of the prince of the eunuchs. So these pictures you see, and if you look at the ancient pictures of eunuchs, none of them have beards, you see. If they didn't have a beard, that was a sign that they were a eunuch. They were serving in the palace, and they couldn't establish their own dynasty. And so we find here that he's given him over to the prince of the eunuchs. By the way, this is another reason Daniel was not a priest, because a priest could not be castrated, or else he was removed from his office. So he wasn't anyway. He was of the royal line, not the priestly line. Now, children in whom there was no blemish, but well-favored and skilled in all wisdom and cunning and knowledge and understanding science. Notice that. Daniel was a scientist. He was also a government official. Such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace. He knew, he came from the royal court, he knew how to behave in the palace. And so we find in whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. Now he wanted to brainwash them. He wanted to Babylonianize them. And in Daniel 1.5 it says, And the king appointed them a daily portion of the king's meat. Now this is important. And I'll come back to that in a moment. And of the wine that he drank, so nourishing them three years, and at the end thereof they might stand before him. That means they might serve him. They might serve the king. Three and a half years, Daniel and his friends were to go through the University of Babylon to equip them. Now, in the University of Babylon, you had to master three languages. You had to master the Aramean tongue, the Akkadian tongue, and the Sumerian tongue. And, of course, Daniel already knew Hebrew and Aramaic are very close to Hebrew. So Daniel probably knew at least four languages. And why? So that he could stand before the king. Now, there's more to this about why it says the king's meat and wine. Because food and drink were considered a part of the religious obligations. And again, I'll touch on that in a minute. Now, among them, along with Daniel, were three of his friends. There was Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. What is he doing? First thing he does, he changes their name. 
when the white man took over America, he took the American Indian, who was a hunter and a fisherman. You know, the women were the ones who took care of plowing the ground and planting the seed and skinning the animals and all that. That's women's work. What did they do? They took Running Bear or Swift Arrow, whatever his name was, they didn't, no longer was he a hunter or a fisherman. They put him on a reservation where he was a farmer. They degraded him to doing women's work. Not only that, but to deculturize him, they changed his name from Running Bear to John Clark. What were they doing? Giving him American names so that he would forget his past. And this is similar to what they're doing here. Notice, Daniel's name meant God is my judge. So what did they do? They give him the name Belteshazzar. May Bel preserve his life. And then Hananiah, which means the grace of God, now becomes Shadrach, the order of Aku. And then Mishael, who is like God. That's where we get the name Michael from. Who is like God or the one like God. So Mishael now becomes Meshach, one who is like Aku. And Azariah, Yahweh has helped. In plain words, God is my help. Okay? And then they change him to Abednego, a servant of Nigo, Nebu, or Nebo. Different names for the same God. And so they changed, he changed their name to deculturize them. Look at verse 7. And unto whom the princes of the eunuchs gave names. Notice it was the princes of the eunuchs who changed their names. For he gave unto Daniel the name Belteshazzar, Hananiah of Shadrach, and to Mishael of Meshach, and Azariah unto Abednego. Now verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart, determined. Now that's interesting. I'm going to touch on that again in a moment. It says he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the princes of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now Daniel was not arrogant. You know, sometimes you say, I'm not going to eat that junky old food. Huh, what are you trying to do? He didn't take that attitude. He was polite, but he was also firm. And he offered alternatives. And notice why. Because there's more to the meat and wine than meets the eye. The unexpected use of the verb, amen, the word determined, Daniel determined, he made up his mind that he wasn't going to eat this stuff. But the king had also determined he was. And so we find in relation to Nebuchadnezzar's suggestion that the king, in determining what the menu was going to be, he's taking the place of the creator. Because the creator in Genesis is the one who dictated what they would eat. And now here's Nebuchadnezzar setting himself up as dictator. We don't see that. The Hebrews did. And notice what else. It says a more careful observation of the meals reveals that the, the king's intention 
Indeed, the Meat-Wine Association characterizes both in the Bible and in ancient Middle Eastern cultures the ritual meal taken in context of a worship service. So what were these foods offered to? They were offered to the gods. We oftentimes say, well, it's because they wanted to have good health. Yeah, that was a, good, that was a factor too. But we're looking beyond this. Daniel was seeing this as idol worship. If he ate this stuff or drank this stuff, he would be giving uh, recognition of their God. So to participate, here again, he wants to be polite. To participate in such a meal implies submission to the Babylonian cult and recognition of Nebuchadnezzar as a God. And Daniel's not going to do this, nor his friends. Notice what else happens. Beyond the healthy choice issue, the concern is essentially religious. He declined taking these for religious purposes. And something already hinted at in the text by Daniel's desire not to be soiled in verse 8. Religious language found in the Levitical context of prohibited foods. He didn't want to soil himself, as it tells us in Leviticus 11. Daniel shares the same concern as many of the Jews in exile. He wanted kosher food. Now, we have a different idea of what kosher is. Folks, being a vegan does not mean you're eating kosher food. There's more to kosher than just that, you see. It could be sprinkling salt that came from uh, the shell's of clams or oysters along with the salt. You need to have kosher salt, too, if you're going to be kosher. So there's a lot to it, and it has to be approved by the rabbi, etc., today. But notice here, he wanted to eat kosher foods, foods that were approved by God. We find also that Daniel recognized in this that Nebuchadnezzar was calling himself the creator. And it says here, the same Hebrew words uh, appear with the same association, vegetables. Now, the word vegetable meant more than just what we call vegetables. It included fruits, grains, and nuts. They were also considered under the general terminology of vegetables. You're where are you? There. What is a tomato? How many say it's a fruit? How many say it's a vegetable? It's a fruit. Well, you find it in the vegetable bin. And it took the Supreme Court of the United States to declare that it's a vegetable because it has all the characteristics of a fruit. You know, the vegetable growers and the, the fruit growers were in competition, so they took it to court. I don't know if it was Supreme Court, but one of the courts. But notice here, vegetable in included, that's why it's sometimes called pulse. Pulse takes in that whole lot. And we find, too, rather than to hassle what was kosher and what wasn't kosher, Daniel chose a vegetarian diet. Now, a lot of times we say, well, that proves Daniel was a vegetarian. But be careful about that. Because, don't forget, if he was 
a good Jew, he would observe the Passover, which meant he was to eat lamb. Right? And so we find that Daniel, why is he doing this? Because he wants to make sure what he's eating is kosher. And of course, during the exile, I don't think they're going to let him observe the holidays that they had anyway. So we find here uh, that Daniel does do it for health reasons, but he also does it for religious reasons. Verse 9. Now God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. He gained their respect. The, the prince of the eunuchs uh, appreciated Daniel, just like Joseph came into favor with not only Potiphar, but even the jailer. Look at verse 10, and the king too. And the prince of the eunuchs said unto Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who hath appointed your meat and your drink. For why should he see your faces worse liking than the children which are of your sort? In plain words, there's a lot of you Jewish boys who were taken into captivity. The other guys are eating it. Why aren't you? What do you have to be a vegetarian for when the rest of them will eat this stuff? You see? You're putting pure pressure on him. Then shall ye make me endanger my head to the king. He says, look, if you come out scrawny and sick, I'm going to be the one that loses my head. So he was thinking of his own survival in this. Look at verse 11. Then said Daniel to Melzar, whom the prince of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, prove thy servant, I beseech thee, ten days, that's important, and let them give us pulse to eat and water to drink. Now, why ten days? The number ten in Bible numerology is the minimum number. It's the minimum number that the Jews had for, well, for a holding religious service, for instance. Even today, it's called a minion. But notice that the number 10 is the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's called a yod. And we find a, a countdown of 10 days exists between the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement. It's serving as a time of preparation and testing. This is what the number 10 signified. And even now, if you want to change your diet, if you want to break a habit, hold out for 10 days. Hold out for 10 days, and you'll find you're making the victory over that. Even today, it has some application. Look at verse 13. Then let our countenances be looked upon before thee, and the countenance of the children that eat the portion of the king's meat. And as thou seest, Deal with thy servants. So he consented to them in, in this matter, and he proved them for ten days. And at the end of the ten days, their countenance appeared fairer and fatter of flesh than all the children which did eat the portion of the king's meat. So who turned out to be the puny, scrawny ones? It was the ones who ate the king's meal, the king's menu. Now when it says they became Fatter in flesh. Didn't mean they were roly-polies at the end of 10 days. It meant they had a healthy look. They had a healthy glow to them. And not only did it affect them physically, 
But it even goes on to say, thus Melzar took away the portion of their meat and the wine that they should drink, and he gave them pulse. He gave them the vegetarian diet. Look at verse 17. As for these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill and all learning and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. He grew spiritually as well as physically. Verse 18. Now at the end of the days, that's the end of the three years, okay, that the king had said that he should bring them in, then the prince of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. What is he doing? It's time for Daniel to finish his schooling. It's time for him to graduate. And who's going to give the final exam? It's the king himself. You know, Nebuchadnezzar, he may have been a bit of a tyrant, but he was also a scholar. Nebuchadnezzar was a very intelligent man, and he was also a man who was well-educated. And so he gives the final exam to them. And what does he find in verse 19? And the king communed with them. Apparently it was an oral exam. I don't know if they took a written one too. And among them all was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore stood they before the king. They were given prime positions in the cabinet. And it wasn't just Daniel. It was his friends as well. And in verse 20, And in all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times, remember that number ten again, ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in this realm. They were right ten times more than those of his own people. Verse 21, And Daniel continued even unto the first year of King Cyrus. Now why does it say that? It's just telling us that he served all the way through the Babylonian period. He also served through the period of the Medes all the way up to the king time of King Cyrus before he died. He had nice, long, healthy lifespan. And so chapter 1 concludes with showing Daniel now living as a for a purpose, and later chapter is going to get into that. Why? Because why King Cyrus? Because now Daniel, from reading the book of Jeremiah, he discovers that the 70 years of Babylonian captivities about to come to an end. And who is the one that's going to let them go? It's King Cyrus, you see. So Israel... And Jerusalem, that started out collapsing and going down, now we find, by the time we get to the time of King Cyrus, Babylon has gone down, and Israel is about to be restored. Does, is God in control of things still today? Just when we think things are going one way, whoa, the Lord turns things around and makes it. Isn't it interesting that Hitler tried to get rid of all the Jews in all the lands of Europe? 
It was only a few years after his death. Lo and behold, the Jews have their own country. And they're one of the most powerful nations in the Middle East. Isn't that ironic? Isn't it interesting that during the French Revolution, Voltaire said that he could tear down Christianity. A little bit after his death, what happens? The house in which he lived became a book and Bible distribution center. I think God has a sense of humor, don't you? It shows the power of God. And so we conclude our first chapter. I know we had a lot of uh, history to go through. I'm going to give you a quick quiz. I didn't give you a paper to write it on. You can write it on the back of that. All right? Number one. Who won the Battle of Carchemish in five, uh, 605 B.C.? Babylon, Egypt, or Israel? Write in the one you think is correct. Number two. Who was the Babylonian king in chapter one? Number three. In chapter one, verse eight, Daniel determined not to offend the king's thoughtfulness at the meal. True or false? Number four. Daniel requested a vegetarian diet and water. True or false? Number five. At his final examination, how much healthier and smarter was Daniel than those who followed the king's diet? Three times, ten times, or twelve times? And then the last one, the bonus point, number six, who was Belteshazzar? What's his other name? All done? All right, here are the answers real quick. The Battle of Carchemish in 605 was won by Babylon. The Babylonian king in chapter 1 is Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Number 3, Daniel determined not to offend the king's thoughtfulness. That's not true. He went against the king in doing it. Daniel uh, requested a vegetarian diet and water. That's true. At his final examination, how much healthier was he? He was 10 times healthier. And who was Belteshazzar? It was Daniel. Okay, here's your homework assignment. Read chapter one again. Now I want you to read chapter two and invite somebody else to come next week. Until then, we're going to have prayer and then it'll be shalom. Let's have prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Daniel. We thank you for the blessings that you bring us and helping us to know that the God who ruled back then is the same God who rules today. And you are the one who sets up and takes down kings and people and nations. And Lord, you can bring, you can bring success and victory to our lives, even out of devastation. Now bless us and may our courage and, and faith in you be strong. In Jesus' name, amen. Shalom.